0: Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to tomisticinstituteorg slash rome. That's tomisticinstituteorg slash rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming. I've been asked to talk to you about the case for free will, I think it might be better to say that I'm going to make a case for free will, uh, but one that I think is novel and interesting and I hope airtight. So first, what do we want to investigate? And uh, what is the question, in other words? And I think we can start with a pretty uncontroversial presupposition, which is that uh, some objects enter our perception, and among these objects, some of them attract us and we can decide whether or not to act upon that attraction. We feel compelled to do things and we can choose whether or not to do them. So I can choose to seek things that attract me or I can choose not to. And that I think basically is the question. Or this is what most people mean when they say that they have free will. They have competing options that present themselves for selection and they can select one of them. The deeper question, that we want to investigate is whether or not we actually have this power or can we actually make choices and what would be the alternative the alternative would be that we are simply along for the ride in our own consciousness we seem to be aware of making choices but we don't actually make them our choices are a product of some other forces in your mind call it your subconscious call it your neurons call it whatever and the outcome of whatever options uh, seem to be placed in front of you, the the outcome of that uh, apparent selection is already determined for you, and you simply experience the result as if you were making a choice, and then you do the thing that something else already decided you would do. In other words, is the sense that you have, that you're making a choice, something that you are doing, or is it simply an illusion? Now, I think, to start, that the very fact that we can even ask that question is already evidence in favor of free will, but that's to jump the gun a little bit. It seems that, it seems at least apparent that if I can do that, and it seems that I can do that, that I do have such a power and I do have free will, because the assertion that you don't have free will would imply that you're delusional or really everyone's delusional. We are all suffering from a collective delusion. And one would wonder why it is that you'd be interested in proving that to be the case if we all were under that kind of delusion. Um, So more fundamentally though, could something that is so basic to our understanding of ourselves, so common to human experience, so fundamental to our mode of engagement with the world actually be an illusion? And if you say yes in response to those questions, then I think that puts us in a very dark place, at least in terms of epistemology. Because if you can't trust your most basic intuitions about the world, if you can't trust your most basic intuitions about yourselves and about other people, then naturally the question arises, what can we trust? It seems nothing. You end up up being a nihilist, I think. And some people indeed think that the answer to this question is yes. Our choices are simply illusory and we are suffering from a collective delusion. But to be transparent, I actually was one such person at one point. And I think that that gives me uh, an insider perspective into the delusion, the collective delusion, into the mindset of someone who would deny the conclusions that I'm trying to draw. And so, I mean, you could say that I wrote this talk for myself Uh, I wouldn't, it's not entirely true, but it's more accurate to say I wrote it for someone who I think thinks like me, because I would expect that a person in the opposing position probably would think similarly. So the question is, uh, if it it seems at the outset ridiculous to deny the reality of free will, then why do people do that? Uh, And I think that it's because the, the denial of free will is the natural and necessary conclusion of a materialist worldview. When you adopt a materialist worldview, in other words, you reduce all of reality to something material, that's just what happens. If you think there's nothing real beyond the material world, or that everything real is material, then you have to say that the same is true of our minds, that our minds are mere matter, that they are merely material. And uh, material is something that we're quite familiar with. We encounter it all the time, and it's pretty easy to understand. We know how it works, and we know how it behaves. And because of that, we can predict with a high degree of accuracy, for example, what matter will do in certain conditions. You can take a physics class, learn about projectiles, and so on and so forth. That in itself. Uh, seems to, to the the hyper-focus that our our culture has on the predictable, on the calculatable, tends to cause people to narrow their perspective and focus only on those things. So you end up creating a a false presupposition in your own mind that uh, whatever you can understand easily is real and anything outside of that scope is is just fake or illusory. Um, Now, since you can predict the behavior of Uh, material things with a high degree of accuracy uh, and you apply this to everything, it seems that everything should follow the same rules. So, for example, what this means, if you are a materialist, is that everything that is made of matter is nothing more than the sum of its parts. If you can understand all of the parts, you can understand the thing. So a sophisticated machine, for example, no matter how impressive it is and whatever crazy things it can do, it is still limited in all the ways that matter is. So a machine is bound by space because matter is bound by space. It follows the laws of physics because that's what material things do. And it is determined by the laws of physics. So if you had perfect knowledge of all of its parts, you could explain all of its behavior and there would seem, there would seem to be nothing more to it than whatever forces were present at its origin. And it's not hard to see how such a thing as this would not be free, anything that is material only. Every one of a machine's actions or movements is caused by something outside of itself. At best, a machine, a highly sophisticated robot, would follow a program that's put into it by another agent. So something like that cannot be the cause of its own activity. It, that is, with respect to to the conversation about free will it cannot act for reasons that are proper to it it doesn't have its own reasons for acting It, it, it acts for the reasons that something else put into it so it does what someone or something else wanted it to do and this is perhaps a more precise way of phrasing the original question so what are we looking for the question are we really free can be answered by saying Do we act for our own reasons, reasons that are proper to us? Or do we act for reasons that are not proper to us, that are due to some forces that we're not aware of? In other words, are we compelled? So this is what we're after, for example, when we seek whether a certain action was voluntary or not. So you can think of practical examples. For example, uh, your friend says something rude to you. Does this mean that your friend was actually trying to be rude or was, was being insensitive or was that person simply in a bad mood? If you say, well, she was in a bad mood, does that excuse her behavior? Does being in a, in a mood excuse somebody's behavior? And if so, that indicates that the cause of your rude remark was not your will, but rather your mood. And so there's some attenuation of your responsibility. Now, why would that be the case? Because at least part of the reason is that if you're in a bad mood, that shapes your perspective. That causes you to look at certain aspects of a situation. So if you say, for example, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that I was angry. Well, what, did, what does anger do? It causes you to focus and like hyper-focus on an injustice or a perceived injustice such that you can't consider other aspects of a situation, such as, for example, your friendship. And so if you're not attuned to all the considerations that you should take into account when you're acting, that at least implies that your freedom is attenuated, you're not perfectly free. And if, you, if freedom then admits of degrees, well then it can admit of higher degrees, and it implies at least that a person could be free in acting. Um, say for another example, uh, a person accidentally kills someone with their car. Is it relevant to ask whether they were asleep at the wheel? Certainly. Is it um, relevant to ask whether they were under the influence of a drug? And if that happens to be the case, then should you ask further whether the person knew that that drug would affect them in such a way or at such a particular dosage and so on? In other words, we're getting at questions about a person's knowledge. Why do these questions matter? These sorts of questions matter. These sorts of questions come up in a court of law, for example, when you're trying to discern the difference between murder and manslaughter. You want to know how responsible somebody is based on how much they know. What that shows you is that the question of whether we're free is closely connected to the question of whether we know things. And if we're free, what this means is that we're acting on the basis of knowledge that is properly ours. In other words, on the basis of reasons that are proper to us rather than on the basis of blind mechanical forces that are put uh, in us by somebody else or by something else, like evolution or whatever. It's worth pointing out, I think, if you've ever had experience with children, small ones, like two or three years old, one of the things you'll notice is that even though they can barely talk, they're already master litigators. (laughs) They are impressive and formidable debaters. If you try to... uh, chastise them for some action that they were not supposed to perform immediately they will say something like i didn't know i wasn't supposed to do that they will say something like you never told me that was wrong they will say something like i didn't know that would happen they will say i didn't do it on purpose or i didn't need it and every single excuse that they're looking for has something to do with ignorance almost always sometimes it's it's, sometimes it's actually about compulsion. You know, that usually happens later on, though, when they're a bit older. When they're really young, they're usually trying to appeal to their own lack of understanding or lack of knowledge about something. So what that shows you is that two-year-olds get this. Two-year-olds understand this is the case. So I'm going to go ahead and say that all children are realists, and the only people who end up in a position where you deny things that are obviously true are philosophers (laughs) or people who are influenced by bad philosophy. If you want to know what the truth of the matter is, ask a two-year-old. So that's, that's, the, that's the claim I'm making, the, the first major claim. If we're free, effectively what that means is that we can know things, and then we can act on the basis of that knowledge. That's part two. So I think, I think that that kind of follows really closely, because if you can prove that you can know things, then what that means like it, it wouldn't really make sense to assert simultaneously yes you actually know things but no your knowledge does not affect your behavior just doesn't really make sense. So that's part 1. Do we actually know things? I think the answer is yes, and I think that I can prove it, but part of the proof the like you probably already agree with that you can know things, but the proof is important because it shows you what it means properly speaking to say that you know things. Or like, how is it that human knowledge differs from whatever sensory impressions animals have and things like that? Because it actually is really astounding. And Aquinas is very good at drawing the distinctions. So um, Aquinas argues that if, if we're gonna say that we truly know things, then just as it is the case, if we're gonna say that we can truly choose things, then our minds cannot be bound by the limitations that characterize matter. Our minds have to be immaterial. That's step one. And that, or that's a huge jump. So the basic claim that seems to be uncontroversial is, we know things. The controversial claim is, that means that our minds are immaterial. And that a lot of people have trouble with. So let's get into that. Because um, that's, that's how you have to escape this problem. Like I, I, I think it's clear, if our minds were material, we wouldn't be free. That's true. So how do we escape that? Okay. What would, it make us, what would make us say, for example, that our minds are immaterial? I think, first of all, once again appealing to children, that everyone has an intuitive grasp of this until you're ruined by bad philosophy. You know, a lot of people seem intuitively aware that there's more to them than their bodies. So here's another example. This is not my kids. This is somebody else's kids. A friend of mine was having trouble potty training his son. The reason why his son didn't want to sit on the toilet, and there are many reasons. Lots of children have very irrational fear of the toilet. It's, It's a mystery. But this kid was very verbal, and so he was able to say what he was afraid of. He didn't want to sit on the toilet because he said, and I quote, I don't want to lose my me. That's adorable. But he's getting at something really true. I mean, what he's thinking of is the soul, right? That's what he has in mind. He's probably three at this point. He's, he's, he's aware that there's something more to him than his body. He doesn't really get it because he thinks that it can fall out of his bottom and be flushed on the toilet. It definitely can't, but he's, he's aware that, you know, when he looks at his body, there is something that is perceiving and that there's an object that is perceived and they're not necessarily the same. So he has that basic awareness. So that's, okay, that's cute, but now let's argue. The intellect, argues Aquinas, must be immaterial because it has the capacity to abstract universal ideas. So, if the intellect used a material organ, which in this case we'd say is the brain, that's the best candidate we have, and it doesn't even work, uh, it could never abstract universal ideas because matter is both individual and particularized. So. Here's how to get at this concept. A body, a physical body, cannot receive a universal concept because the body itself is limited and particularized. If our intellect used a bodily organ, then our concepts would also be individual and particularized. Think, for example, of the impression that a stamp makes on a piece of clay. If you stamp a piece of clay with a stamp, you have an impression in the clay, but if you Use a different stamp to stamp the same piece of clay, the old image is gone, and then you have a new one. So the clay can only bear one image at a time. You can, of course, imagine many. But this isn't simply a quantitative uh, thought experiment. Think, for example, of a very sophisticated computer that could form an amalgam of images and come up with an image that you had never fed into it it would still be an amalgam of images. So any image that even like you use an AI bot or something like that, any image that a computer creates is still simply a collection of other images with additions and subtractions based on various inputs and so on. But the the medieval principle that Aquinas is following is that nihil dot quod non habet, which is nothing gives what it doesn't have. So if an agent is limited by space and time, then so are its actions. In other words, nothing can transcend itself. So um, if we extend this a little bit to talk about the natures of things, then we can make this argument a little bit clearer. Everyday experience tells us that uh, if a body receives a form, I'll explain what that means in a second, then it loses the form of it loses the form that it had. So for example, if I make clay, I have a lump of clay and I make it into a cup, then I no longer have a lump, it's just a cup. And if you make it into something else, then you don't have the cup anymore. Or if you burn wood into ash, you don't have wood anymore. I have a cat, at one point she was small, now she's big. If she's big, she's not small anymore. But when your mind gains a new form, It does not become corrupted in the process like this. It doesn't lose the forms that it already had. So if your mind were a body, it would not be able to acquire knowledge about the natures of all the things that are around us. It would just be an amalgam of all the things. It isn't an amalgam of all the things. It's truly universal. So consider, for example, an analogy, right? Uh, Your pupils, or more accurately, the, um, the cornea of your eye, can't have any color. If it did, it wouldn't be able to be open to all colors. You might notice, you might think it's weird, for example, that my glasses have clear lenses. I tell you, that's very deliberate. Because if, if the lenses were red, then I would only be able to see red because only red could pass through. But in fact, they're clear. They don't themselves have color, which means they're open to all colors. They're not limited by color. Uh, so similarly, a material thing, for example, can be either hot or cold. But your minds can consider the forms of both hot and cold simultaneously. All right. Now I'm going to ask for your help a little bit. I'd like to ask you, I'm going to do an experiment with you. Do me a favor and try to think of a color that you've never seen before. Okay, who's done it? Good. Good. Once somebody does it, then I have to think of a new argument. Okay. Why can't you do that? But the thing is that you can understand the concept of doing it. So you knew what I asked for, but you couldn't actually produce the thing. So the concept's hypothetical, but the thing doesn't exist. Why is that? So Aquinas argues that we have two modes of perception one sensitive and one rational. The rational is the one that I'm talking about. That's the one that free will depends on. That's the one that transcends the material. Your imagination is an interior sense organ, he argues. It contains impressions. Uh, sense, it, it contains the input of your senses based on uh, sensory impressions that you've had throughout your life. So you can form amalgams of images, right? You can think of a golden mountain, for example. That's his example. Why can you think of a golden mountain but not of a color that you haven't seen before? Because you've seen gold and you've seen a mountain and you can just put the two things together. But you haven't seen a color that you haven't seen before. So what that means is that you can't imagine one either because your sensitive powers are bound by space and time. They are constrained by your experience. If you haven't experienced it, the form of it, you can't imagine it, but you can think about it. So what that tells you is that your intellect is able to transcend your sensory experience. You can understand that concept of color that you haven't seen before, but you can't do it. So you you are both material and spiritual for Aquinas. And that right there is a little proof of of that reality. Um, Here's a second example. I'll again ask you to do uh, a little work for me. Please think of a dog. Pick a dog, any dog. If you think of a dog, I won't ask you to name which dogs you're thinking of, but just hypothetically... You know, one of you probably is thinking of a Doberman and one of you is thinking of a Chihuahua and so on and so forth. Um, Whatever dog you think of is going to be an individual dog. It might be an actual dog. Maybe it's a dog that you grew up with or your friend had or that your grandma had and you hated, whatever. But it's a dog. Nevertheless, although that dog is only one dog with a certain set of characteristics, you can recognize a dog that you haven't seen before as a dog. Furthermore, if let's say you had never seen a dog before because you grew up someplace where they don't have them, I don't know, and somebody told you what a dog was like, you would be able to recognize one even if you hadn't seen it before. So what that shows you is that your mind's understanding of what a dog is transcends the imagination, the image that your imagination conjured up. You know what a dog is, and that knowledge cannot be reduced to an image. So you're using an image to stand in for a dog, but you could just as easily swap out a different image that could also be connected to that concept. What that shows you is that the image and the concept are separate. One is immaterial and one is material. Uh, Plato argues in his Parmenides that, related to this, a more general concept, like animal, for example, covers whatever is contained within that concept the way a tent covers anything that's underneath it, okay? So animal would cover dog and pig and frog. But it is pointed out in this dialogue that the problem with this view is that only one part of a tent covers any individual animal. But the whole concept of animal applies to dog and pig and frog. So the material analogy fails. You can't say that a concept is like a tent or like an umbrella. It doesn't work. It doesn't, the, it, 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 these sorts of things don't actually map onto physical reality. So anything that is true of animal is just as true of dog as it is of pig, as it is of frog, not just a part of it. It's not like, it's not like uh, dogs occupy this part of what it means to be an animal and pigs occupy this part of what it means to be an animal. They're all animals, equally so. So the extension which we use metaphorically, that animal has over dog and pig and frog is not any kind of material extension. So the concept is therefore not a material one. So I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna give you one more argument for this. Consider the reality that you have never seen a circle before. Now to clarify, I'm sure that you've seen circles, but you've never seen a perfect one. You could try drawing one, it won't be perfect. You could try using a compass, it still won't be perfect. You could use a computer, you could program a computer to display one to you, it still won't be perfect. But you know what it is. And although you've never seen it before, you do have the definition of a perfect circle and it's pretty easy to come up with. A circle is a curve, all the points of which are equidistant from a center point. But even if you drew that curve based on that definition, you still wouldn't have a circle. It won't come out exactly like that because the material realities that surround us never fully encapsulate these forms, as Plato would call them. So since you know what a circle is, and you truly do, and what a perfect one would look like, and you would know it if you saw it, you still have him. So what that means is that you didn't get that concept on the basis of your material observations alone. There's something more going on in your mind than simply observing matter. But to prove that, you, that this definition is real and that you do truly know it, you can consider that you can use the definition of a circle to make all sorts of predictions. You can, if you take a physics class and talk about you know, parabolic curves and so on, you can predict the uh, trajectory of a projectile and things like that. Um, you can use all sorts of geometric shapes to do this. You can do all sorts of geometry that you can use to, to do all sorts of fancy math and so on. The definitions that you would use in such calculations are real, and they really do describe reality, but they're never found in material things. And that's why when you take a physics class, you have all of your variables, and then suddenly there's one squiggly line at the end. And you ask the professor, what's that? And he goes, oh, that's a coefficient. What's that? uh, It's the rest. It's never going to be perfect. You know, you can do two-dimensional calculus to predict a projectile, and then you add dimensions to a, you know, a plane is landing. Okay, you got gravity. Now you have wind. Now you have this. It gets more and more and more complicated. It's never actually perfect. It's just an uh, approximation of the theory, right? In Aquinas' terms, the reason you're able to do this is because your mind is able to do, perform what he calls abstraction. Abstraction, just two Latin words. Ab means from, and trahere is uh, to pull away from. It's where the word attractor comes from, something that pulls The idea is that your mind is able to pull a universal idea away from all of the material characteristics that particularize it. So you can look at a big green circle and a small red circle and then come away with what's universal about both. Not greenness or redness or smallness or bigness, but circleness. So every circle meets the definition that I gave already, but circles are all different. They can be drawn in chalk or with marker or with whatever. So the material component of things that makes them to be individual and particular is not the full explanation of what they are. That your mind is able to know the universal makes it clear that your mind itself is not uh, individualized by matter, particularized by matter. It's rather open to many things universally. Just like my glasses are open to all colors, so your mind is open to all forms. All natures, all substances. If your mind is open to all substances, if you're at least material substances, then it cannot itself uh, be informed by one of them. It cannot be limited by one of those material forms. So another demonstration that our mind is immaterial and also that our will is immaterial is based on what's called reflexivity acting upon oneself. So I know that I know things. I don't just know them, I know that I know them. And I don't think we realize how, um, how unique that is in the animal kingdom. Uh, so for example, the eye does not see that it sees, it just sees. The ear does not hear that it hears, it just hears. Material things do not have this kind of reflexivity. No saw cuts itself. It only cuts other things. The ability to act reflexively is something that only immaterial things do. Bodies don't do this. No body moves itself except by another one. So if a body does move itself, it's only actually moving on the basis of parts which move each other and so on. Uh, This is called imminence. I can act upon myself. I can understand myself and so on. But if my mind can reflect on itself, it must not be a body. Um, Just making sure I don't repeat myself. One of the interesting uh, proofs of this is in the frustration that new parents have with putting kids to sleep. Kids don't like taking naps. Cats do. It's real interesting. One of the things that I was astounded by uh, when my first son was born was just how hard it is to convince little babies that they have to eat. You'd think they would just do it. I never had to do it with my cat. I put the food in the bowl, cat just eats it. You don't have to teach it, just does it. When the cat's tired, it sleeps. It doesn't seem like it should be any extraordinary behavior because it isn't. But the thing is that that's all that there is to being a cat. Cats sleep when they're tired because that's what tired things do. The cat has no other awareness of itself than being tired, so it just does what tired things do. My son doesn't. When he's tired, he might think, I don't want to be tired. I would prefer not to be tired. And so that presence of meta-awareness is what makes little kids have giant FOMO syndrome. When you try to put them down in their crib and they go, no, I want to keep playing with you guys. You know, but cats just don't do that. So but that's, that's, that's right there. That fussiness of little children is evidence of reflexivity. What would be the rational thing to do when you're tired? It would be to go to sleep. But kids haven't really developed that ability yet. They have the basic awareness. They don't know how to act on it. They eventually learn how to do it, hopefully. But they're kind of, they're, they're aware of themselves and they're aware of an alternative possibility. I'd rather not be tired. Another interesting difference uh, between immaterial things and sensitive things is that sensitive things are overwhelmed by intense experiences. If you look at the sun, you'll go blind. My ears are certainly damaged from years of going to rock concerts and so on. But if you think about God, you don't break your brain. That doesn't uh, damage your intellect, rather that fulfills your intellect. It doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be God either. It can be another high form, as Plato would call it. Think about beauty itself or something like that. Um, Okay, this is really important because if everything I've said is true, then... This implies something extraordinarily important about the soul, which is that the soul can subsist without the body. In other words, the soul is immortal. Why? Because your body, I've, if what I've said is true, then what I've shown is that your soul can do things without your body. Because if you can understand things, if you can choose things, then your soul is able to perform functions that transcend your body's capacities and so that your body does not perform. What that means is that your soul has a faculty, has a power uh, that is not dependent on a bodily organ and so therefore exists apart from a bodily organ. That means that it exists on its own and it does not need your body to continue existing. So when you die... Your soul remains. Uh, Now, in other words, it's already the case that your mind can work without your body. In fact, it must. That's been the whole point of what I've been saying so far. And if your mind not only can but must work without your body, then why would it cease to work when your body's not there anymore? Now, the soul of a cat is different. Their souls, cat souls, feline souls, they inform bodies, but that's all that they do. They make the body to be the body of a cat rather than a lump of flesh on the ground. When a cat dies, it's, the soul's gone. It's, it's corrupts because the principle of its organization is all that the soul was. But in a human soul, the bo- if the body's gone, the soul remains, and we know that because of its rational faculties. What this also means which is also an extraordinarily important implication aquinas argues is that the soul is not the product of material generation it is not produced by parents just like you can't make an angel you can't make an angel factory so you can't make a human soul only god can do that why well it can't a soul can't be a human soul can't be produced by something material Because it's immaterial, and so it transcends uh, material nature. But it also can't be produced by something spiritual, because spiritual things don't undergo generation and corruption the way material things do. So the soul is created by God. A a human being is conceived, and God implants the soul. So God intervenes in in creation, at the the conception of of every individual human being. Um, So... The point of all this is to show that the human mind is something very different from material things. At the very least, it makes it clear that the characteristics that we normally ascribe to material things do not apply to our minds. And if that's the case, then we should be very wary of presuppositions that we bring to the table when we start thinking about the will. Shouldn't bring materialist presuppositions into the consideration. So now let's think about the will. For Aquinas and for the medieval scholastics in general, the will is called the rational appetite. In other words, it's the appetite that follows reason. It is the inclination that we have to things that is based on our knowledge. That's basically the definition of it. You know something, you can judge that something is good and that you should pursue it, and you can act on that inclination or that knowledge of that inclination. the, The actual inclining, that's the will. So in other words... Our will is the inclination that we have toward things that is based on our knowledge. So when you desire to go to college or to become a lawyer and so on, that's an activity that you perform with your will. And it is always going to be based on knowledge. That's why when we want to test whether somebody is acting freely as in the case of the drunk driver or the, you know, the impaired driver, or whatever, we ask whether that person knew what they were doing. Again, children are happy guides. When you accuse children of wrongdoing, their first excuse is to say that they didn't know that what they were doing is wrong or that it was an accident and so on. They appeal to their ignorance. So, to have free will means that you are able to make choices on the basis of knowledge. And if you do something and somebody asks you, why did you do that? And you give an intelligible answer, that intelligible answer will always be based on some knowledge that you had. And if you are able to do that, that means that you had free will. So a lot here hinges on whether we actually have this knowledge, and I hope I've shown that we do. What sense would there be in saying that we can know things, but we can't act on the basis of this knowledge, or that knowledge um, is not an illusion, but our actions on the basis of it actually are illusions? It doesn't really make sense. So if this is easy to accept, that we know things and we can act on the basis of our knowledge, and furthermore, that the mind is not merely material, and so it isn't restrained by the limits of matter, then the conclusion that we have to draw, that we have free will, follows pretty readily. So then what objections are there? I'm gonna address one important one, the argument from predictability. Is it not the case that we can predict what other people will do? the more we get to know them, their behavior seems to become more predictable to us. This is certainly true. But it shouldn't bother you. In fact, it should encourage you. Because if the argument that I'm making is true, then our freedom should be based on knowledge. And if you know what somebody else knows, then you would often know what they would do. The argument that we're not free because our behavior is predictable is based on an implicit kind of determinism, which itself follows from materialism. It goes like this. If I can predict that Y y will happen after X, then I have uncovered the mechanism behind the relationship between X and Y, which means that Y necessarily follows X. And there is some truth to this. If you discover that a ball falls to the floor every time you drop it, as, again, children do. One of my friends likes to say that they're little induction machines. They keep dropping food off the table to see if it still splats every single time. Yes, I assure you, it will continue to do that. This at least implies that there is something necessary about the sequence of events and that the ball is not free not to fall. But here's the thing. Here's the problem with this argument. Would it make a difference if the behavior of the ball were unpredictable? What if balls were capricious? What if they were totally unpredictable? What if, when you let go of a ball, you had no idea what it was going to do? You couldn't predict it with any certainty whatsoever. Would that suddenly make balls free? No, it would just make them unpredictable. It would make them capricious. If a human being's behavior is totally unpredictable, we wouldn't say, this person is free. We would rather say, this person is crazy. Because the will does have an inner logic. The will does have a nature. There are things that it's supposed to do. It's supposed to have a recognizable pattern of behavior. What it's supposed to do is act upon your knowledge of the good. If it didn't, what would be the point of having it? The conclusion here is that predictability or unpredictability by itself doesn't actually tell you anything about whether something is free or not. What matters is what lies at the root of the behavior. What caused something to behave the way it does, whether, the, whether you can predict it or you can't predict it. For Aquinas, the will is our inclination toward the good, just as the intellect is inclined toward the truth. So let me ask you a question. If you were lost in the woods, would you want a map? Probably. Probably. Would the map limit your behavior? Certainly. If another person were watching you lost in the woods through a telescope, not offering you any help because they're a bad person, uh, would that person uh, know how your behavior would change once you were given a map? Would they be able to predict more accurately what you'd be able to do? Certainly. Would that person looking at you through the telescope knowing that you were desperate to be out of the woods and knowing that you were an excellent map reader, be able to plot every future move that you would make. Indeed, they would. Are you more or less free with that map? You are more free with the map. Without the map, you can turn any way you want in the woods, but you are still lost. With the map, you could move any way you wanted, but you wouldn't. And you are more free because you are able to achieve your goal. So those who are truly free actually are quite predictable in their behavior. The freer you are, I would argue, the more predictable your behavior becomes. And in conclusion, to have free will means that you're able to act on the basis of knowledge. We have knowledge because our intellects are immaterial, which means that they are not material things and should not be thought of as such. Finally, we can predict someone's behavior, and this does not, should not be taken to mean uh, that the person isn't free, because the predictability itself doesn't tell us that. What tells us that is that the person has knowledge and can act on it. Thank you, that's all.